Today's podcast is going to be a look back on the 17 podcasts we've released so far this year. We'll play clips from each one of them. You can find the ones that pique your interest, subscribe to our channel for free, then all of the podcasts we've done will be out there and available for download. So you can listen to the ones that pique your interest here. Hello, this is Dan Silvestri and Tom Pizzotto of SpyMovieNavigator.com and our podcast show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. We launched our first podcast in June 2019, and since then we've released a new podcast pretty much every other week. It's been fun examining how spy movies have been impacted by other spy movies and other movies, as well as the influence that real-life events have played on spy movies. And we want to thank, in a big way, all of our listeners all around the world We've been honored that spy movie fans in 29 countries have downloaded our podcast so far. Thanks for joining our worldwide community of spy movie fans. We really do appreciate it. All right, so let's start our look back at the 17 podcasts we released this year, and then we're going to look forward as to what to expect to see in spy movies for 2020. We're big spy movie fans, and when we look online, we see a bunch of sites dedicated to James Bond and not much else. I mean, we're Bond fans. That's great. Yeah, and for me, it's really frustrating because there are hundreds of spy movies out there that have been made, but are, how are they interrelated? There's not a lot on the on the net that we can find that. What are the origins of the movies? Mm-hmm. Can we find scenes and themes in other spy movies that are in the one that we might be watching this evening? And how have these spy movies influenced each other? Finding that out is pretty tough right now. Obviously, one genre is James Bond. The others are Mission Impossible and the Jason Bourne series. And then one category we're calling the best of the rest. The best of the rest is a category of other spy movies other than the big three. In this genre, we think of things like Hitchcock's 1935 film, The 39 Steps, which is generally considered one of the first spy movies. In 1962, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, to more modern films like 2011's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and even Atomic Blonde, American Assassin, and Red Sparrow. And these later ones are spy movies that became a lot more bloody and gory than what we'd had to date. There are dozens of great spy movies like this that fall into this category, the best of the rest. We'll pick out what we think are the best and what we think have impacted other spy movies in subtle ways and in more sophisticated ways. We'll have something for all spy movie fans and we'll continue to grow the site by adding more movies or genres that we find are great. We'll look for the interconnections and relationships and unique concepts and key scenes in all these genres so that we can all learn something new. So we started SpyMovieNavigator.com and our social media digital properties to reach out to the worldwide community of spy movie fans to create a place to congregate, discuss, gain and contribute insights share photos videos and more dr no is dr yes for spy movie fans and new spy movie fans who are focused on born and mission impossible and maybe more recent bond films with pierce brosnan and daniel craig would enjoy going back to the first james bond film dr no to which we think they will also say yes Now, when released in 1962, the U.S. and Soviet Union were in the Cold War, each country suspicious and in fear that the other might develop more nuclear weapons than the other, attain nuclear superiority, and strike first. So this is what was really happening in the real world at the time. So selecting Dr. No as the first Fleming novel to turn into a film 
dealing with American missile launches was very topical at the time. The film began shooting in January 1962, a mere 10 months before the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that was, what, October 16th to the 28th in, the, in 1962. Exactly, right. So that was bringing, the Cuban Missile Crisis really was, was bringing Soviet missiles with warheads to Cuba, just 90 miles from the U.S. coast. Now, keep in mind, Dr. No was released in the U.K. October 5th, 1962, less than two weeks before the Cuban Missile Crisis, and in the U.S. in May of 1963. Yeah, so the so the real world actually serves as a backdrop to fuel the interest in the film Dr. No, because nuclear war, missile development and deployment, and the ability to attack with missiles was top of mind. So Dr. No opens up with what is now an iconic and used in every Bond film scene, where you've got some dots going across the screen. It then moves into Harry Saltzman and Albert R. Broccoli present. Well, there's a couple of things with the dots. It's kind of cool when you look at them in a different way. One is they could be bullet holes, but it's also when you see the two of them coming across the screen, it's like the double O in 007. So you'll see it over and over again in in Bond movies to come from Ian Productions that you're going to see these two dots moving across the screen. And I like to look at that and think, hey, that's the double O in 007. Bond is now being called in to investigate the Strangways and Secretary murders and to see if there's some connection between these, Dr. No, and the interference with the American missile launches. We'll see similar scenarios in Live and Let Die where Bond must investigate the murder of three agents and we see agents killed in the living daylights in Gibraltar, View to a Kill, Octopussy, and in more Bond films to come. We will see similar scenarios in Mission Impossible and even the Bourne series. The interaction between Sylvia Trench in Red and James Bond at the Baccarat table at Le Cercle at Les Ambassadeurs in London sets up the entire Bond, James Bond scenario in the films. From this scene, we know absolutely Sylvia Trench will be the first Bond girl. How do we know that Sylvia Trench will become the first Bond girl? Because of several overlooked clues that she gives us in this scene. We visited Les Ambassador in London when Tom and I were there not too long ago. Cubby Broccoli set up a meeting once at Les Ambassador for Fleming and Irving Allen to talk about maybe turning the Fleming Bond novels into movies. This was before Harry Salzman and Cubby Broccoli were, were teamed up. Allen was not impressed, and he told Fleming the stories weren't even good enough for television. Take a look on YouTube at the Dr. No documentary. That's what it's called. It's a very detailed story on how Bond got to the movies, Written and directed by John Cork. Come with us as we dissect the first Mission Impossible movie. For the most part, many spy movies have had their origin from books. You've got James Bond from the Fleming novels, Born Identity from Robert Ludlum's books. You've got Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan stories, John le Carre's books, etc., However, in 1996, Paramount Pictures and Cruz Wagner Productions released the first film of Mission Impossible series based on the TV show. Other spy-based TV shows wouldn't get their U.S. big screen debuts until years later, namely I Spy in 2002, Get Smart in 2008. Yeah, even The Man from Uncle in 2013. Yeah, a long time. Man from Uncle in 2013. Yeah, it was a pretty bold move by Cruz and Wagner and Paramount. So the question again is, how do you bring a successful TV show to the big screen? Well, one answer to that question would be to bring in one of the biggest box office names in Hollywood right now, uh, Tom Cruise, to play the lead character. Add a lot of very cool stunt work, bring Brian De Palma in to direct it, and keep Lalo Schifrin's 
awesome theme song. The theme song is terrific. I mean, when you hear that playing, you, I mean, you just you just smile. I mean, it's just like yeah, that's cool. and they and they weave it throughout the film at key points just to kind of add to that punch and excitement and that lit fuse, which instantly brings the viewer back to the TV series. Yes, the masks are there. The TV fans can feel at home. Now, the James Bond series of films made the pre-title sequence a mainstay of spy films. Most spy and action movies today include pre-title sequences. Mission Impossible 1 reminds me of the shell game because you're supposed to track where the P is on the three shells, and most of the time it's a con game. In this movie, in Mission Impossible 1, the masks are coming off so frequently. I mean, they use it a lot. You never know who's who and if someone's wearing a mask or not wearing a mask, and and, and it kind of reminds me of that game. It's like, yeah, exactly. Try, try to figure out where, yeah. what's going on at yeah. some points. Where's the P? But a few very important things come out of the first six minutes of the film that TV fans would expect to see. You've got the mask. You've got the Lalo Schifrin music. In the, in the title sequence itself, and I'm going to talk about this more, we see little snippets of what's to come in the show. We see the, that there's a con game. And these are things that if you are a fan of that TV show, you want that in this movie and you get it right up front. And the Bourne series handles things a bit differently. Yeah, that's right, Dan. The title in all of the films is just a simple title. The title pops up by itself and no other credits are given until the end of the film. Very different than what happens in, in, in the Bond or Mission Impossible films. Was Bond the first one with pre-title sequences? It doesn't seem like it. But really, we can go back to 1930 and there was a film called Viennese Nights. And there's a very short sequence of a beer garden and a song is being sung before the title sequence comes in and then the movie starts. It shows you how an, a, a movie can impact what happens in other movies and how the spy movie guys kind of latched onto this concept. In our research, there are a number of films and shows that predated Mission Impossible that use masks. Like in Star of Midnight, Peter Gunn from Russia with Love, and the list of Adrian Messenger. The next clip is the knock list heist. And Ethan tells them that the room or vault where the computer lives is very heavily protected. There's sound, touch, temperature sensors. It really is going to require a gutsy heist in order to get the file. This scene is fabulous, but it's obviously modeled after the work of Jules Dawson. Dawson was the director of the 1964 heist film Topkapi. He also directed the 1955 heist film Rafifi. Yeah, we really enjoyed Mission Impossible 1, and we're glad that uh, Cruz and company are doing more and have done more. Sherlock Bond? James Holmes? James Bond is the spies, but Sherlock Holmes is the detectives. Let's journey into this dark London world together and see what clues we can find. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who obviously wrote all the Sherlock Holmes stories, and Ian Fleming, they created, of course, some of the best-known literary characters the world has ever known. I mean, these guys are huge, right? James Bond and Sherlock Holmes. So Sherlock Holmes and Bond both made the leap from these great literary novels and short stories onto the big screens, and the world has never been the same. Sherlock Holmes has been in print since A Study in Scarlet was published in 1887. He's been sleuthing around for 130 years. And Bond's been spying now for, what, 65 years? Yeah. And is as popular today as ever. Yeah, so these two guys have made it. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a medical doctor. So what's he doing writing about Holmes here? Where did he get this concept from? 
Well, he had this professor, Joseph Bell, who was amazing at treating patients. And he would use his deductive powers and analytical skills to analyze what was wrong with a patient and come up with a plan. And to Arthur Conan Doyle's surprise and everyone else's, this guy was usually right. He would do this stuff without examining patients. He would look at this, look at the different details, the symptoms and everything else. Say, oh, this is what's wrong with And he was right most of the time. And so Arthur Conan Doyle was like, wow, if that approach was applied to detective work, it would be amazing. And so that's how he got the concept that that whole idea should be applied to the detective world. And the same thing with Fleming. Fleming did learn a lot from his whole naval intelligence operations that he was in and his experience and his boss, this guy, Rear Admiral John Godfrey. So Fleming's real life experience contributed immensely to what he developed in terms of James Bond's character, personality, and way of doing things, his methodologies, and the detail, all the detailed stories that surround Bond as we know Bond today. Bond's got his problems he's got to solve, whether he's got to go kill this guy in Jamaica or whatever he's got to do and how to do that. And then Holmes is more cerebral than Bond, but still solving problems. So they're both solving problems, and so that's why they're kind of very similar. So Holmes was really like Professor Joseph Bell, and Watson was like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, now, James Bond, though, he, he doesn't get that close sidekick, you know, at least on an ongoing basis. You might say uh, Maybe Felix yeah, Leiter. Felix yeah. Leiter yeah. Might, might come close. Yeah. But the character of Bond was, for the most part, a compilation of real-world espionage personnel Fleming grew to know in his time in the naval intelligence, including the Serbian double agent Dusko Popov. Yeah, he was a double agent, and uh, Fleming used to meet with him in Portugal, actually, during World War II. So Tom and I, we were at the Palacio Hotel in Estrela, Portugal, and we're sitting in the very bar where Fleming sat with uh, Popoff at one point. So we figured out where they sat, and so we had a uh, Vesper Martini there, which, by the way, we're... I do believe we had more than one. Very good. They were The awesome. first one I remember. <laughs> they, they were awesome there. So both authors infused their main characters with dimensions of themselves, and both authors were, of course, very well educated. All right, here, here's another interesting similarity, really, between Doyle and Fleming. Doyle was originally going to name Sherlock Sharon Ford Holmes, and Watson was going to be called Ormond Sacker. Well, it turned out to be Sherlock and Dr. John H. Watson. So well, how, how, how is that a similarity between Doyle and Fleming? Well, it, in, good question. In 1952, there was a draft of Casino Royale. This is when Fleming was writing Casino Royale. And he reveals Bond's alternate, albeit cover name. It was going to be James Secretin. All this makes us believe more than ever that James Bond is to spies what Sherlock Holmes is to detectives. Taking the first step in spy movies, The 39 Steps sets the bar for all future spy movies to come. The authors here for The 39 Steps and for Bond have similar pedigrees too yeah the parallels here are kind of interesting yeah uh, Fleming served in the British Naval Intelligence in World War II and John Buchan during the First World War 
worked at the Foreign Office and War Office before he moved to a new Ministry of Information uh, organization where he was the Director of Intelligence. So they both really knew spy stuff. And the brilliance of the novel here is, which becomes very Hitchcock-like in other films, is what Glancy highlights in his book as a double pursuit, where the innocent main character, who's wrongly accused of a crime, or is assumed to be a criminal in the film, must run from both the police and the criminals, in this case, the spies. The film opens in a theater in London, and this guy walks in in a trench coat, and you can see the man from the waist down. He purchases a ticket. He walks in. I mean, it's kind of similar to James Bond. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is how James Bond is introduced to us 27 years later in Dr. No, when you see him sitting at the gambling table at the Le Cercle, and you just see his arms, his chest. He's in a tuxedo, and you see all that before they reveal his face, and this is kind of a similar setup. Yeah, and in, on Majesty's Secret Service they did yes, that. right, when um, they introduced uh, George Lazenby as Bond. Right? Yeah, the 1939 film Juarez, starring Paul Mooney, also did this, and they, one of the things I read was saying that when they created James Bond, they used the Juarez version of this as their inspiration for how they introduced us to Bond. So Hanny thinks he's free. He's on the train. He's going to Scotland trying to figure out what the 39 steps are. It's a train scene, which is always good. You got chases, fights, yeah. you know, meetings. Yeah. It happens in a lot of spy movies. So again, this, this is the first time we're seeing it, a, a train scene, and it's going to be a chase scene. And, you know, you look at a ton of other movies, Secret Agent, From Russia With Love, Live and Let Die, Spy Who Loved Me, Octopussy, Mission Impossible 1, a bunch of them. Casino Royale, Skyfall. Yeah. Skyfall, Fallout. And Fallout. Yeah. The, the latest uh, Mission Impossible Fallout. Intense drama. The whole scenario is really well done. Again, The 39 Steps is considered by many to be the first spy movie. And here we see an innocent man, not a spy, as the leading character in the movie, along with a strong female ally. How fun would it be to visit actual spy film locations from a couple of great James Bond 007 films, Goldfinger and License to Kill? Well, we just did that, and we're going to tell you all about it now. Today we're going to talk about our trip to Florida in the United States to some of the film locations for Goldfinger and License to Kill, a couple of great James Bond 007 movies by Ian Productions. So on this trip, Tom and I went to Miami, Florida in the United States of America and to Key West, which is also in the United States of America, one of the great Florida Keys. So we've taken our podcast here of Goldfinger and License to Kill filming locations in Florida, and we've split it up into two different podcasts. And so this is the first part's going to be Goldfinger as part A, and then we'll play part B uh, on, the next, on the next edition of the podcast, which will include the License to Kill locations. In Goldfinger, several scenes were shot in Miami. So as you know, Goldfinger starts out with James Bond at the Fontainebleau Resort in Miami Beach. And it is it is a beautiful resort. So Tom and I, when we were in Miami, we went right to the Fontainebleau. We found the area where the ice skating rink was. So we, we got into the pool area and we, did, we, we established a couple of shots where Felix Leiter actually was standing. So we've been to the Fountain Blue. The next few scenes we're going to be looking at that were filmed in Miami, but are supposed to be in Kentucky, are the KFC, the Kentucky Fried Chicken, where Felix Leiter and Simmons are waiting to pick up Bond's homing device signal so they could follow him if necessary. 
Odd Job's route where he's driving Mr. Solo with his gold in the Lincoln to the airport. The last scene is the Miami Iron and Metal Yard where Odd Job is driving Mr. Solo to his pressing engagement. We got to about 17 different film locations and every one was fun. And in this podcast, we'll pick up the License to Kill portion. All right, so we've completed the Miami part of our, of our journey, and we're now going to switch films and locations and head down towards Key West, on our way down to Key West. We're on a mission today in, uh, in Florida, in the Keys, because we're trying to find locations from the movie License to Kill. License to Kill was the first Ian Productions film uh, where the title wasn't taken from a, an Ian Fleming work. It was going to be called License Revoked, but powers that be thought that not many people would understand the word revoked at that time, and this 1989 when the film came out. So the title was changed to License to Kill. What Ian did well is take pieces of Fleming's works and characters and move them around in their screenplays and uh, for their movies. Here in this movie, Milton Crest is taken from the Fleming short story, The Hildenbrand Rarity, that was written in 1960. We're at the airport where Sanchez lands his jet, and we talked to the guy, Will, now, who runs Skydive Key West right here. And he let us walk out onto the runway and do all kinds of cool things here. Take video and pictures of, of the runway where Sanchez's jet lands and where he escapes in the Cessna 172. All very cool. Hi, we're Will, uh, Will Ruspis here at Skydive Key West. Mm-hmm. He's going to tell the story how in License to Kill, the Bond movie, where they used this very runway to land Sanchez's jet when he came in and to take the Cessna 172 out when he escaped. He's going to tell the story about how that happened. Well, it's an interesting story, actually. So, yeah, this is the, the, the runway behind us, which is only 2,700 feet long. Wow. Which is quite short. For a jet, that's For a short. jet, exactly. So what happened? So they had to figure out how to do that. And what, what, what we actually did is we cleared out this whole area to our left, and the jet was able to go down there. Uh, the jet was all the way down in Key West, put just enough fuel to fly up here, land, and go back. Oh, my God. Took as much weight out of this plane as possible. Had a great pilot flying it. He took one pass. The first time he wasn't too sure about it, came back up. He had, he had enough fuel for one more pass. And I came down nice and low, started at the very end of the runway and took it all the way past the runway, right over to the houses over there. No crashes, though, right? No crashes. So he did it one one take? One take. Oh, if my you, God. If you watch the video at first, you think it's a touch and go, which is where you just let yes, the yes. wheels touch and then you take off, which isn't that hard to do because you don't have to slow the plane down. Right. Oh, but if you yeah, look right. at another scene, you'll see the plane sitting over here on the ramp. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, it was definitely a, a very technical landing and, and very interesting for for pilots to be able to see that. Yeah, that's a great story. All right, well, uh, what happened to the plane? Though I know they had the, the Cessna 172 out there for a while, and then people can come and see it, the one they actually used in the movie when he escaped. What yeah, happened? exactly, yeah. Uh, well, the owner of that plane, his name was Fantasy Dan. Huh, okay. uh, Dan Haggerty. Better oh, Dan like Haggerty, Haggerty. Right, yeah. right, right. Uh, He sold the plane. So, it, yeah, it was there for many years, uh, but eventually he was sold the plane. I'm not sure who the owner is at this point, but it's no longer down here in the Keys. Okay. Well, thanks. Right. They appreciate that. Hey, yeah. Will, tell people how they can get a hold of you and how they could skydive with you here. Well, we're at the same airport that you see in the movie, Sugarloaf, Sugarloaf Airport, just north of uh, Key West. And you can get a hold of us. You can go to uh, skydivekeywest.com, and all our information is there. Great. All thanks, right. Will. We appreciate Thank it. You. Yeah. Great. So Will was just talking about the plane and how it used to be out by the road. And we want to make sure we highlighted that because some of the guidebooks are and, and travel sites about bond locations talk about 
look for that plane on the side of the road, well, it's not there anymore. No. So you really want to make sure that you're, when you get over on Highway 1 and you get uh, just by the Sugarloaf Lodge, that's that's right where this turnoff is. And, of course, in the same area right around the corner from here is the house where Lupe gets caught by Sanchez. Unbelievable. So we, we got to see the outside of that house, and we got some video there too as well. And we got to see the field where the, the helicopter lands and Bon is waiting. And actually the, the when when the Sanchez and his guys realize the DAA helicopter's here, they, they run down the stairs of the house and try to escape. We saw the field where the helicopter landed and when the gunfight starts taking place and the bullet holes are going into the helicopter. Well, and the cool thing too was it was like all right next to each other. Yes. It was like a two-minute walk. So there's, there's other things. And then the dinners and fun and the bars and it's just a good time so join us now as we search for the love in from russia with love when fleming wrote the novel the soviet union had not yet launched sputnik which was the first satellite ever put into space but by october 4th 57 sputnik was successfully launched which began the official space race between the soviet union and the united states i love how eon productions and and, and fleming actually took these current events Yes. And turn them into magic. Even though this film is not about space, it had that tension built now between the Soviet Union and the United States, and that's what this film is about, the tension between these two superpowers. Now, the Lecter was actually based on the actual decoding machine called the Enigma during World War II. When, when Tatiana talks about it in the movie, she's really describing pretty much the way the, the, Elec- the Enigma machine was set up. Sir William Stevenson, the head of Ultra and a close friend of uh, Fleming, he revealed the secrets of Fleming's contribution in a book entitled A Man Called Intrepid. Yeah. That story holds without all the fantastic stuff you see later in the bomb scene. Now, this film actually introduced the concept of the pre-title sequence into the Bond series because they didn't have one in Dr. No. A mask is lifted off a of Bond to reveal that it was really someone else. 1963 movie that was the first one we know that used heavy makeup and facial masks as disguises. Yeah. The last Last year at Marambad, a film that came out in 1962, and it actually helped guide Terrence Young's teaser from from Russia with Love. The theme that gets taken forward and how the title sequences are done in Bond films actually starts here. Really, Robert Brownjohn, who got, gets credit for doing this because he was in, in charge of this, he actually took the belly dancer and you, he shows the, the titles kind of over the belly dancer as she's dancing. All the way through Spectre, that's become the, the standard. And it's set in the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul. And you can still find this building. It's an it's an inn now that was used for this meeting. And it's always great to go to those sites and see that stuff. It's fun. One of the things I love about this is it takes what they did in Dr. No of the spy stuff, not gadgetry. I mean, he has a gadgetry to yeah, yeah. read the fact the phone's bugged. Dr. No, he does the thing where he pulls his hair out and sticks it on the door so he yeah. can, or he's got the talcum powder. And that's all that spy type stuff that happens. And unfortunately, we lose a little bit of that as the series progresses. And it also highlights how much Bond and MI6 agents are actually assassins in the field. There's some other movies that actually use this to great effect. Uh, one of Robert Ludlum's novel, uh, The Osterman Weekend, actually, that's actually a main part. I mean, even Revenge of the Nerds. Oh, yeah, <laughs> they've, yeah. got the, they've got yeah. the camera in the, yeah, right. in the shower right, room, right, right. right? The Bulgarian was involved in a scene that got cut later in the movie. So he gets killed in this scene. Yeah. Towards the end of the movie, there was supposed to actually be another scene that they filmed. They screened it. It was ready to go like a week before or so they were going to release the movie. Mm-hmm. The director showed it to his 12-year-old son. And his 12-year-old son said, Daddy, that man with the beret was already killed. Robert Shaw killed him <laughs> at the mosque. 
the woman falling for Bond in many more Bond films and it, other it spy happens movies. a lot, right? He wins over a woman ally. I mean, in, to be an ally, and it happens often. In well, Bond I mean, movies. You, you go not just Bond, but you go back to the Thirty Nine Steps. Yeah, right. Uh, Same type of thing happens there in the Thirty Nine Steps. Right. I mean, that's really one of the greatest train fights in all of cinema. And uh, we we see train fights a lot. So in nineteen thirty five in the Thirty Nine Steps, we see a chain a train chase in a spy movie pretty much for the first time. Right. So they think this is based pretty much directly on this incident so, of this real guy eugene carp this was a real murder on the orient Express. it really I mean, was a murder real on the that's cool <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like yeah. that. and in north by northwest you have the crop plane chase right chasing cary grant who they think is a spy and and that's again another chase scene similar to this chase scene so it all kind of flows together and impacts one another i went off to try to find where this was yeah and we pull up to a gate i get out of the car and tell my wife i'll be back in a few minutes and I am in the middle of nowhere. It was me, a bunch of goats, and a bunch of horse flies. This actually is a, a nod to the movie Paratrooper, which is also known as the Red Beret. It was a 1954 film by Alan Ladd, and it was directed by Terrence Young yeah, and written you by Richard Maybaum. You have a job for life with Spectre. You just don't know how long it's going to be. <laughs> in the book, she has both the shoe blade and poison knitting needles, I believe. And he actually gets hit with the poison needles. The only movie that he doesn't end on the water with a woman is Goldfinger. Hey, today we have a special guest with us, Dave Holcomb. He's the author of this great little book that Tom and I just finished reading, His World Never Dies, The Evolution of James Bond. And even after reading the books, we knew the sexism was there in James Bond, but there was a little bit of a racial overtone. But when you actually read the manuscript, there was definitely more racism in there than I was expecting, or racial overtones. I don't know the right word for it. I don't know if it was overt, but definitely something there. Yeah, a lot of it was scratched out by Fleming. So some of it survived in the book. He toned it down a little bit. It was weird to see this, and so we thought, this is a great topic, and this is why we're going to talk to Dave Holcomb right now who wrote this great book. Dave, hello. This is Dan, and here's Tom. Hi, Dave. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed the book. I, I'm uh, mostly a sports journalist, but a huge James Bond fan in my free time. Besides James Bond, what other spy movies do you like? I really like True Lies. I really like the Jack Ryan series. I okay. know he's not exactly a spy, per se. And one more more recent movie I wanted to mention, Anna, that came out in April or May of this year. The book kind of dives into how James Bond, the the movie series, has changed over its 50, almost 60-year history, um, starting out uh, portraying uh, masculinity as as perfect and and mostly white and or all white and white European, and how that's changed how the portrayal of women and sexuality, how the, the series has become more diverse and how it's portrayed different types of people and races of people and sexual orientation of people. It really has undergone a, a vast evolution. Part of the book that I, I really loved and was fascinated with was your your treatment of the historical gyre. The history gyre uh, was something that I learned about in high school. It's called the History uh, Gyre uh, Evolutionary Circle. And, and the concept is that human society goes through, in a circle, through these four stages called primitive, hierarchical, 
classical and decadent. James Bond goes in this circle where we have maybe a, a bare bones spy movie that I think is where Dr. No kind of started. Maybe, mm-hmm. But they slowly develop more special effects, more stunts, but more also they take more liberties with realism. I noticed as I started thinking about it, then it goes back to being kind of a bare bones spy movie. We, you know, I'm I'm researching why we we like this character so much and the person that created them basically says I didn't want him to be likable. The portrayal of Asians and and black people portraying Asians as smart nuclear scientists. They're making they're evolving now a little bit. I mean, we got Jeffrey Wright now as as lighter and I do have to say one thing I really liked in your book is the way you handled that whole topic. Right? The whole topic of people being different and racism can be a pretty touchy thing to, yes. to go through, and I actually really liked how you did that in the book. We don't move forward as a society unless we talk about it, so we ha- I think we have to talk about these things. Hey, Dave, this has been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think we And I enjoyed the book. Yeah, and the book is terrific. His World Never Dies, The Evolution of James Bond by Dave Holcomb. Have you ever thought about how events in the real world and other movies could affect and work their way into some of our favorite spy movies? We're going to start with Dr. No, since that was the first Ian production James Bond 007 film. And in a subtle nod to life happening, the painting of the Duke of Wellington by Francisco de Goya was stolen. So in Dr. No, when Bond is in Dr. No's lair, he walks through the lair and right as he's about to go up these steps, he stops and he looks at a painting on an easel. It's the Duke of Wellington. Check out this book for your eyes only, Ian Fleming plus James Bond by Ben McIntyre. Here, he tells of the attempt to murder Bond on the Orient Express by Smirsch was really based on a U.S. naval attache in Romania, and he found out that a Dutch spy used a very similar technique. Taking the real world and running with it. Yeah. In 1965, the world was very aware of the threat from the major powers building up supplies of nuclear weapons. So here we have real-life events from the 1958 film Silent Enemy and their underwater chariots being used seven years later by... Thunderball with the underwater sleds and so on. Hey, Dan, one thing we forgot to talk about in, in Thunderball that was from real life that I really loved was that jetpack thing. How how long can you breathe underwater with that device that you had in the in the movie? And, and Peter Lamont said, as long as you could hold your breath. <laughs> in a huge real-life situation in World War II, Operation Mincemeat, Google it. This is a fabulous, fantastic real-life story. The Allies floated the body of a dead man with fake papers, identifying him as a captain who the Germans had been tracking. And the source of the plan came from Rear Admiral John Godfrey and his assistant, Lieutenant Commander Ian Fleming. Our next example from this movie, You Only Live Twice, is Little Nelly, the one-man autogyro that Bond flies to do the surveillance in Japan it was a real-life invention, but it also reminded me of the little auto-gyro that was in the very first spy movie, The 39 Steps. We then move into On Her Majesty's Secret Service to deliver a chemical agent that will stop plants and animals from reproducing. Traces, <laughs> this is, yeah, draw your own conclusions, traces of the toxic chemical were supposedly found on all the carcasses. Yeah. On Her Majesty's Secret Service comes out in 69 year after this chemical warfare and potential devastation to life through chemicals was very much real and really kind of an ingenious plot we're going to continue with 1971 film diamonds are forever 
That combined with Jacqueline Kennedy's jewelry at the time, again, diamonds and emeralds, in the early 1960s, it put diamonds on everyone's mind. And then the De Beers campaign and everything else. This was huge. Coincidence or Great Timing by Ian, the subject of diamonds, was ripe for the 1971 launch of Diamonds Are Forever. So we think the first film for the Mission Impossible series was influenced by... One, the TV show for basic concepts, self-destructing mission messages, music, masks, etc. Secondly, the timing in between Bond films. And thirdly, the worldwide locations, like shooting in Prague, was definitely Bond-influenced. Mission Impossible was one of the first big-budget films to actually film in Prague, and now Bond, Bourne, and Mission Impossible have all filmed there. Aldrich Rick Ames, and he actually, in June of that year, took a list of the names of some of the agency's best Soviet sources, and in there he had code names for them and and, and tied the names with the code name. Uh, He took that and actually gave it to the Russians. All right, we're going to take a quick look at The Born Identity, the 2002 film. Yeah, there was another thing that influenced this film a little bit, too. Now, the director of the movie was a guy named Doug Lyman, and his father was named Arthur Lyman, and he was the chief counsel for the U.S. in the investigation of the Iran-Contra affair. One of the main characters, if you will, in that, in that whole Iran-Contra affair was a guy named Oliver North. And now we're going to move on to Casino Royale. So do you mean the 1950s TV show, the 1960s spoof, or the 2006 Eon production film? Uh, no, no, yes. Yeah, we're going to talk about the Ian Productions film. The popularity of Texas Hold'em worked its way into the film. Instead of, as written, Chemin de Fer and Baccarat, the game that Fleming talks about in the novel. And now we're going to move on. Instead of just talking about an individual spy movie with how reality influenced the spy movie, we're going to talk about a bunch of movies altogether. And in particular here, we're going to look at James Bond and James Bond on Ski. The Spies Who Loathe Me. Why other spy franchises despise James Bond. In 1962, the movie franchise took its first big steps with Dr. No. Dr. No cost a million dollars to produce, and it grossed over $59 million, which gave Eon Productions a pretty good start in the James Bond 007 franchise business. In fact, if you look at it, that's 59 times their money. It's they, amazing. They made back. There's not a lot of businesses that can say that. That's a hell of a start. I think we'll do another film. Yeah, <laughs> there's an idea. <laughs> Following up Dr. No with a smash hit from Russia with Love in 1963. You've got this kind of revenue coming in, and they've got no competition. Long out of Fleming material, the franchise may have suffered some stomach issues at times, but always relieved its indigestion. We're looking at domestic versus worldwide gross for a reason. All the way up to Skyfall, which cost 200 million to produce yeah and it grossed worldwide 1.1 billion james bond has a worldwide appeal there's not a single one of these that <laughs> lost money and what's happening in other spy movie franchises so absolutely far at nothing that time i mean nothing nothing but there were no real franchises to challenge bond basically in productions had a monopoly of sorts on the spy genre if that's true where is everybody? They started raking in hundreds of millions of dollars, and everyone else is sitting around going, wow. Uh, sure, George Smiley made an appearance in 1965 in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. A franchise threat? No. Then Gary Oldman plays Smiley in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy in 2011. A franchise threat? No. Wasn't so, and isn't so. 
Tinker Tailor grossed worldwide about $82 million in 2011, while the bonds Skyfall in 2012 grossed $1.1 billion. Smiley, he loathes Bond. What were these producers thinking about? Bond delays between films had other filmmakers thinking. So what was the first big assault on Bond? Three Jack Ryan films produced and released during the Bond hiatus. Jack Ryan was the first spy to load yeah. Bond. They actually went out and they said, okay, what was, what was Bond doing right? So they went out and they got three of the James Bond villains in there. I mean, they, they're bringing in these villains from the Bond movies to try to boost it up. And again, they barely made their money back. The Austin Power movies actually made four times their money back. They made good money. They made good money. And that was actually better than any of the Brosnan James Bond films, except for GoldenEye. They made money, but again, most domestic. And don't forget, Jason Bourne comes out in this time frame as well. When Mission Impossible 1 came out, it came out between GoldenEye, 1995, which was a hit, and Tomorrow Never Dies in 1997. So here in 96, you get the first Mission Impossible assault. Producers were finally getting it that there's big money maybe there's, there's money in spy movies big... the first three mission impossible movies actually made more money in terms of gross than what happened with bond they actually have a higher return on their investment since 96 for the six movies than bond has had for the seven movies over that time period and during another five-year wait for the next mi film come on guys you got to get these yeah. out quicker but it is big in the worldwide box office, grossing over $694 million. Those are bond numbers. With only 30% domestic. It's, that's really an important point. To assault bond, you need to have worldwide appeal. It can't just be domestic. But now, Mission Impossible and Bond are close. The closest ever in gross receipts and the closest ever in worldwide versus domestic box office receipts. While we still wait for bond. Is Ethan Hunt the spy who we loathe? <laughs> what is happening yeah, is, here? Is the loathing is the changing? Shift going on? Uh, and again, we wait for Bond. So as Ian Production figures out their next Bond strategy, one of the franchises who loathes this spy is challenging the Bond dynasty internationally for a spot at the top. So let's look at the November 2019 release of the movie Charlie's Angels. And I wish they would have called them detectives again, because then we wouldn't have seen this movie. <laughs> the, the beginning of this actually hammers home a girl power theme. Yeah, like Tom's saying, uh, there, there is a pre-title sequence, of course, because it's popular in other spy movies. And quite frankly, my opinion is, if you've seen other spy movies, you've seen this movie. That theme there really reminded me of Mission Impossible 2. Yeah, there's a lot of things in this film that you have seen in other spy films. Or from other real-life things, like the yes. main adversary's name. Yeah. In the beginning of the movie, the main adversary is the boss. What's his name, Dan? Peter Fleming. Oh, let's see. Where might Peter we have heard Fleming. that before? Now, we've all heard of Fleming, I'm sure. Ian Fleming, of course, who wrote all the Bond novels. His brother, actually, was Peter Fleming. They go to Istanbul... <laughs> Who went to Istanbul? I mean, from Russia with love is in Istanbul. There's a lot of stuff in Istanbul. Now, in the original show, they also had some pretty cheesy dialogue. And boy, this film 
They replicated they it. They had a lot of that. That sounded like a Bobcat Goldthwait line. All right, I'm going to back off a little bit on all this stuff yeah, because thank, thank I'm going to ease up. There, the because purpo- there were a couple of parts that were good. Part of what we're trying to do in our podcast are point out these similarities. All of these spy movies have stuff they've borrowed from other movies. Well, right? This what, one seems to be the whole movie, though. For those of you who saw The Kingsman. The closet. Yeah. They call it the closet yeah. the gadget room thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh. So, Tom, it, are you yeah. going to point something out here? Every time we saw him, I kept thinking back to that character in Terminator 2. Even the B movie in 2007, that animated movie, has a fight scene in a bathroom. <sighs> so, so it's not even just the, the scenes, direct the dialogues are getting, line. <laughs> getting, getting paid homage to. The original Charlie's Angels movies in 2000 and 2003 opened with $40 million gross. If that, you're, but that. if you're listening to this podcast and you're a yeah. younger listener... You might not catch all the nuances or the non-nuance copying that was being done in this film. Or con- that's what we do. We're exactly. looking for connections between these movies and how one impacts another. Just not expecting this, the whole movie the to The whole be movie that. was impacted by everything that happened before it. Today, we're going to do our quick-fire look as we crack the code of the trailer released for the April 2020 Bond movie, No Time to Die. Trailers are supposed to intrigue the audience and get them to want to see the movie by creating some wonder and speculation as to what the rest of the movie will be about without really giving away any spoilers. Well, and that's what this discussion we're going to have is going to be, is a bunch of speculation. So it's going to be interesting to listen to this after we actually see the movie. We asked some of our spy movie community and followers on Twitter and Facebook what they thought of the trailer too before we get into what we think and this this one guy john said it was a well done trailer it captures the essence of what is to come in my opinion this other another fella andre said my thoughts are positive the trailer looks good but the trailer for specter looked good too so okay oh. <laughs> yeah that's a that's Ouch. good and then eddie this is eddie from montreal canada while i definitely enjoyed no time to die the trailer I think it lacks something of the mystery and majesty that made those of Skyfall and Spectre so astonishing. So there, there's something. He said, hey, nevertheless, the trailer for the new one is still quite interesting, but I fear it may hint at a convoluted plot involving genetic engineering plus a palpable sense of needing to prove Bond's relevance yet again to the contemporary world, while at the same time tying up all the loose-fitting ends of the Craig timeline. Let's hope I'm completely wrong about this. So, Eddie, I hope you're wrong. Okay, show me a clip of something, and does that intrigue me? I, I thought that was a great, a line. great line. It's a great it's a line great because line. I love the I love the opening of this trailer because what Bond says is universally true. We all have our secrets, and it makes us wonder. So I'm wondering, looking at this clip, which is a good thing for the clip to do, make me wonder. I'm wondering. If she did portray him. Now, it's interesting you talk about the secrets here. And as we go through this, you, you know, when we were talking about doing this podcast on this trailer, I told you I had a lot of apprehension because for me, I might watch a, I might want to watch a trailer once and that's it. I want to know as little about the movie yeah. as possible going yeah. in. Beautiful scene opening this thing up with the village of Matera. And how much does he really know about her? I mean, his whole knowledge of her. Yeah. from Spectre was really, really short. Then we hear M ask, where's 007? Ah, the, again, for me, more intrigue. We all heard the rumors that the doors are going to open and in walks Lashana Lynch. But here, interestingly, we see an immediate cut to a sailboat and then Bond standing in, in, his, 
yeah. in this idyllic setting on some type of decking overlooking water and stuff. Remember, that that's one of the things they do in trailers, though, is they make you think one thing's going to happen, and then when you actually yeah. go to the movie... Now you're thinking, Mel, maybe he has nothing to do with MI6 anymore. Can this be true? It all conjures up all these kinds of images and questions. I really wasn't familiar with Lashana Lynch's body of work. Seeing that clip was like, oh, she's going to be good in this role. Right. It just just that little bit there really kind of was like, yeah, all right. She, she has a she's presence. Got this. Yeah. Why does he have that stutter on control? Is it that he sees Lashana with Swan? Yeah, or, that's a good question. Or, you know, or just her. Dan, this is getting on our list of places we have to go. Right. There's a shot through a piece of glass. It obscures what's behind it. But it sure looks like there's a mask there. And the hair looks a lot like Swan's. The final scene in the trailer is the Aston Martin is doing the donuts and the guns are coming out of the headlight. If you notice, the, the very first shot of this basically is a bell swinging, presumably ringing. And this to me is the mystery of the entire trailer. We remember Ernest Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls. Historically, when a church rang a bell, it signified that someone died. This is not crazy idea, because this would not be the it's first... Not, it may not be a crazy <laughs> idea, but boy, talk about looking for symbolism. One of the goals of the trailers are to intrigue. The beautiful part about the, talking about it off a trailer is we could be totally wrong. Well, how about visiting a place that owns 11 of Ian Fleming's James Bond manuscripts, typewritten pages that he typed at Goldeneye in Jamaica with Ian Fleming's handwritten notes, deletions, and additions, and edits in blue pen. Indiana University in the United States has a special library called the Lilly Library, and they have the manuscripts. Spent a day and a half poring over all the 11 manuscripts. We photographed every page of Casino Royale, the first novel, so they let us photograph everything. Now we were able to turn the pages of each manuscript with ungloved hands, touching the very pages that Fleming typed in his typewriter in Jamaica. Here he is in, in his own handwriting, yeah. changing things. And you're, you're trying to see inside this guy's mind as he's writing. And why did I make this change? And why did I change this word to that word? That was the cool thing about it is that now you're you're thinking, wow, he, he's changing this. So this was like a thrill beyond belief. Uh, you know, if you're a spy movie fan, especially a Bond fan, if you can get to this place, Go get to this place because it's very, very cool. When you want to go down there, you do need to make a reservation for what they call the reading room. And it's actually being renovated now. So until 2022... Think yeah. a couple of it's years a two, at least. It's about a couple of years. We're do, recording this at the end of 2019. You go into a locked room. That you get buzzed in to get into that room, right? And if you leave that room, you got to come get buzzed back in uh, when you do that. Set them down on these foam pads and we were allowed to turn the pages without gloved hands or anything yeah that shocked me actually yeah, but we could not pick the books up absolutely amazing seeing ian fleming's handwriting any one of these pages would be worth thousands and thousands of dollars we only allocated a day and a half for this and to get through all 11 manuscripts we could have used more time and in this case with casino royale yeah. it's the first one this is where bond starts right now the first page of the book and the manuscript have some slight differences so this isn't the last manuscript. So the one at the library here isn't the last one for this book. The first <laughs> sentence of the first James Bond <laughs> yeah. novel. In the manuscript, it says, The scent and smoke and sweat of a casino combined together and hit the taste buds with an acid shock at three in the morning. Then the soul erosion produced by high gambling, a compost of greed and fear and nervous tension, becomes suddenly unbearable and the senses awake and revolt at the smell of it all. That's what's in 
this version of the original typed manuscript. In the book, he it's changed. So in another manuscript, he scratched this out. Right. But in this one, it didn't. Why did he make those changes? Some of the edits, as you'll see, are things now we're pretty familiar with that in the original manuscripts, we would say, who's that? In the manuscripts, there's a lot of name changes. Things get crossed out and somebody's name changes. It's really funny because you're reading a paragraph and he does a name change and then he has to go through the rest of the paragraph and hand change that name and yeah. all of them. This was before we had word processors. This yeah. was before computers. This was even before whiteout. There's today. We're never going to see this kind of thing where you're going to look at the original typed manuscripts and edits in, in pen. There's a pretty big name change in casino royale yeah right? there's you know there's there's a name that you and i and all of our fans know as something else from what he first wrote we're at this one section in in the manuscript casino royale and he types what do you think petty and then petty is scratched out and handwritten by fleming is the word penny a couple of sentences later miss pettiville is scratched out that was the abbreviation petty right miss pettiville is scratched out and handwritten in its place is Miss Moneypenny. This is where it happened. Everybody knows Miss Moneypenny. Everybody knows Moneypenny. He scratched it out here and put in Miss Moneypenny. Now, the person he modeled Pettival after was actually based on a lady named Kathleen Pettigrew, and she was actually the personal assistant to the real-life MI6 director at the time. So you see these scratches off, and you try to figure out where they're coming from. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And it's pretty cool. Let's shift to the next book, The Undertaker's Wind. What? Well, that was the original title that Live and Let Die was going to have, at least the title that was on the manuscript we saw. Ian Fleming had written in The Undertaker's Wind. He scratches it out and puts in live and let die. But my favorite insert in all the manuscripts we looked at, my, my favorite one was there's this long handwritten insert that was just pasted on top of the original manuscript page. So we really couldn't see what it replaced. But why I love this is the paper that Ian Fleming had used it had a letterhead that said, Congress of the United States, House of Representatives, Washington, D.C. This letterhead isn't in the book. It was no. just has to be the paper that he made this change on. He's trying to describe a fake diamond that Bond is looking at. And he originally typed the word glass. He then hand wrote crystal, crossed it out, and changed it to quartz. So he had to change glass to quartz in the later pages as well. But why did he make that change? You're watching this process change and how important just a word is to Fleming. Page 54 of the manuscript here about Biela Kleb. And, wait, wait, and wait, wait, that, wait. Biela Kleb? Yeah, Biela Kleb. Who's Biela Kleb? You, you know Biela Kleb. I don't know Je Biela Kleb. Oh, wait, no. He scratched out Biela and he... He changes it to Rosa? Yeah. And now on to Dr. No, published in 1958. We're looking at that manuscript. Honey Rider, of course, is... Oh... Honey Rider. In the movies, the first Bond girl. But here, this is published in 1958, obviously not his first manuscript. First, he types that she emerges naked. But then in a handwritten note, in ink, he writes, she was not quite naked. She was wearing a broad leather belt round her waist with a hunting knife in a leather sheath at her right hip. Now let's move up to 1959 and talk about the book, The Richest Man in the World. Yeah, that's a great book. What? The richest man in the world, of course. Who's that? It's Goldfinger. Ah. The book was originally going to be titled The Richest Man in the World. In the manuscript, Goldfinger is typed out yep. with X's. And then crossed out and above is handwritten The Richest Man in the World. So 11 manuscripts later, we feel like we know Bond and Ian Fleming 
much better. What a unique experience and opportunity. Just as a reminder, you need to make a reservation to use the reading room, so don't just show up. This wraps up our trip to the Lilly Library at Indiana University and our terrific tour of the Bond manuscripts. So that's a look at what we did in 2019. Thank you again for subscribing to our channel and for listening to our podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Leave us a voice message on our website or a message on Facebook or Twitter. We're really looking forward to 2020, which should be a great year for spy movie fans. There are some interesting spy movies set to be released. Tom, why don't you tell us about some of them? Yeah, I'm looking forward to this year. This should be a fun year. I mean, it starts off in January with one called My Spy. Uh, it looks like a girl with somebody she's calling her spy, played by Dave Bautista, who played Hinks in Spectre. So that should be interesting having him have a leading role there. That's cool. There's another one in January called The Informer with Anna de Armas, who will be in No Time to Die. As well, Rosamund Pike, who was Miranda Frost in Die Another Day, is also in this one. So that should be kind of interesting for those of us with a James Bond background. Fe February brings us to The King's Man, which is a prequel to the Kingsman series. Now, the interesting thing about this is when you look online, a lot of places were saying this is gonna this was supposed to be released in September of 2020. But when Bond moved from Valentine's Day into April, they moved this into the Valentine's Day weekend. So February 14th is when this thing releases. Oh, and that should be the prequel to the Kingsman series. So it should be interesting to see how they set that up. That was pretty clever. Yeah, it really it <laughs> really is really good idea. Yeah. Now, in April, after a long wait, yeah. we get the next James Bond movie, No Time to Die. Now, one thing I found interesting about this was I'm a big fan of the TV show Columbo. And we get that in the U.S. I don't know yeah, how, a good show. Yeah. How, how widely it's distributed internationally. But there was a 1992 episode of Columbo, which was actually a really good episode that had the same name. So I'm hoping great things for this movie just because of the name and the tie into Columbo. In May, we get Black Widow from the Marvel series uh, with Scarlett Johansson as the lead. I'm not a Marvel fan, but they're kind of positioning this as she's a spy. So that one's going to be interesting to, for me to see how that comes in. In July is one that I'm really looking forward to, and it's called Tenet. And it was the first major film filmed in Tallinn, Estonia. And they've released almost nothing about this film other than saying it's an espionage film. I was in Tallinn the week after they wrapped shooting. Oh, <laughs> and I'm man. like, why couldn't I have gotten there? Good that timing. Week? That would have <laughs> that would have been so cool. But a really cool town. So I want to see how they incorporate that town into this movie. So that should be good in, in July. Now then we have to wait until September for the next movie and uh, next spy movie, and that's gonna be based on Tom Clancy's work, and it's called Without Remorse. And then finally the spy year ends in November with the release of a film called Red Notice. So I'm looking forward to 2020. There should be some big movies out for us spy fans. Yeah, it sounds like it. So Happy New Year to everyone. We'll talk with you next year when we kick off with our look at Goldfinger in January and lots of cool movies and spy movie topics after that. Thank you for listening. Tell your friends to subscribe to our Cracking the Code of Spy Movies podcast. It's free. Happy, Happy New Year, everybody. Year.